continuing with our series Authentic, and the title of this morning's message is The Test of Godly Wisdom, and we're going to be looking at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. While you access your Bibles, either on your electronic devices or on your Bible, I want to share a few announcements with you. We are in the middle of Wave Camp, and our first week, which is uh, the 11th through the 15th, I'm told is Full, but we're having a second week, which starts the second 16th, and so I want to encourage you to sign up your children for wave, wave Camp, and that is for rising first graders all the way to fifth grade, and you can find more about that online. Also, we are starting our summer spiritual formation series, and so you can go online at gocoastal.org forward slash grow and find out more about the fantastic classes we're going to be offering and encourage you to sign up for those. And then finally, want to wish everybody a happy Independence Day ahead of time. I know it's tomorrow. Independence Day is tomorrow. But I'm feeling festive. Can you notice? I wore my colors. And so um, happy Independence Day. Hope you have a great time with your family. Interestingly enough, uh, this year Independence Day comes on the heels of a decision that was made by the Supreme Court that is um, causing lots of uh, discord and contention and argument and strife in our country. So uh, before we pray for our message, can we pray for our country? Because uh, the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, I will heal the land. And we need God to heal our land. And uh, whether we are talking about uh, the elderly or we're talking about adults or talking about young people, mothers, and their unborn children, the Bible says that we are all created in the image of God. And so we honor God for the sanctity of life. And so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to live in a country where we have these freedoms. Thank you, Lord God, because we live in a place where we can gather together and worship. Lord, our country is in desperate need of you, Lord. Only your goodness can lead us to repentance. Only a move from your spirit that would change the hearts and the minds of men, Lord, to cause them to repent from their sinfulness will bring us, Father, into a place of right standing with you. Yet, you said in your word that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so, Lord... Be our God. We proclaim you as Lord, God, and King, Lord. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on our leaders. Give them wisdom and help us, Lord God, to be gracious and loving in it, even in the midst of such strifeful and contentious times, Lord. I pray that as we open up your word this morning that you would speak to us, Lord, beyond my preparation, education, or knowledge, Lord. I pray that you would make your word personal to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
You know, one of the things I enjoy about the book of James, uh, on top of the fact that it has a lot of practical wisdom, is that when you read the book of James, you have a lot of challenging moments. You have these passages that uh, provide for you a moment where you say, mm, or wow, that, that was a tough saying. And uh, chapter 3, the chapter that we're going to be studying this morning, is no different than that. And so before we dive in to these verses this morning, I want to remind you that in verse number 1, this chapter begins by warning the audience that not many should desire to be teachers. Because teachers have a great responsibility to communicate truth with humility and to bring unity in the body. This is what's expected of a teacher of the word of God. Then he proceeds to give some very stern warnings about the tongue and the dangers of misusing it. And here again, he is addressing those who would be teachers and informing them that teaching the truth of God's word is not just about communicating knowledge, but it must be done in wisdom. So here in verse 13, he begins by teaching them what true wisdom looks like. Let's pick up the reading there in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, according to these verses, walking in wisdom is demonstrating good conduct, especially by showing this good conduct with meekness. He calls it the meekness of wisdom. Uh, the Greek word prautes here, which translates meekness, is, is essentially an attitude or a quality of the heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit without resistance to the will and desire of someone else. You see, the kind of conduct this wisdom display not only does the right thing, but does the right thing with the right heart posture. This is the kind of wisdom that not only says the right thing, but says the right thing with the right attitude. This kind of person knows how to communicate truth with a sense of humility. Now, this provides a great place for an introspective question. And I want you to ask yourself the question, when God says no, are you meek? When God says wait, are you meek? Do you humbly accept his response to you with the right heart posture? Being meek, in a sense, is being an easygoing person. It's the quality of heart that accepts things from God with humility. When God says no to the promotion, are we humble? When God says no to the opportunity, are we humble? When God said no to the date, are you humble? 
This reminds me of a story in the book of Luke. It reminds me of the mother of Jesus, Mary. And she was a teenager by this age. And an angel of the Lord appears to her and says, Blessed are you, Mary, for you're going to be fine with you found favor in the eyes of God. And guess what? You are going to be found with child. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the, therefore, the thing that is inside of you is going to be called holy unto the Lord. To which Mary responds, how can this be, seeing that I have never been with a man? The angel says, the power of the Almighty will overshadow you, and you shall conceive in your womb, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary's response is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. She says, be it unto me according to your word. When you're praying about things and things are delayed, is your response, be it unto me according to your word? When you're praying about things and and it seems like the door is shut, is your response, be it unto me according to your word? The meekness of wisdom receives the will of God with a non-defensive heart. The meekness of wisdom receives and follows the command of God by the power of the Holy Spirit with a non-combative heart. One of the things I like about the scriptures, and it's a beautiful thing that we see that the scriptures present Jesus as wisdom personified. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Oh, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 24, where we read, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And if we scroll down a few verses in that same chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Walking in wisdom is an outward expression of our inward devotion to God. Walking in wisdom is an outward expression of a heart posture of meekness. And we see this here in verse 13 that a wise person should show his wisdom by his conduct. In other words, wisdom needs to be coupled with good conduct, which brings us to number one. Godly wisdom can be seen and has distinguishing character traits. The word conduct here, anastrophe in the original, speaks of a manner of life, of behavior, of deportment, of manners. And one of the things that we can glean from this verse is that wisdom can be seen in the lives of people. What a beautiful thing to know that God can help us produce the fruit of wisdom. And in the same way, ungodly wisdom has some very discernible character traits. Ungodly wisdom often has some very visible 
character traits. Listen to what it says in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. These verses give us some very specific attitudes and predispositions of ungodly wisdom. Namely, that it is bitterly jealous, full of selfish ambition, it does not come from God, and it is earthly and primarily influenced by our senses and by demons. Therefore, we must conclude that number two, godly wisdom is in stark contrast with worldly wisdom. Now, first, let me define a few terms because the verse says bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is hostile toward a rival or a person believed to enjoy an advantage. This person is bitter and angry and frustrated because of an advantage or perceived advantage that someone else may have. In addition, we read that ungodly wisdom is motivated by selfish ambition. Selfish ambition can be understood as the motivation to elevate oneself or to put one's own interest above the interest of another. It is the self above others approach. It is the not for you but for me attitude. The whole thrust of selfish ambition is seeking to have followers to promote oneself. Yet the Bible teaches us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And what this means is that we are not to let our actions be motivated by selfishness or pride. When we have selfish ambition in our hearts, there will be three people who are the prime beneficiaries of selfish ambition. And they are called me, myself, and I. There are three people who I look out for. Me, myself, and I. This person says to himself, I am not going to do nothing that does not benefit me. I am not going to do nothing that is not going to make me feel good. I'm not going to do nothing that doesn't make me happy. It has to be done my way. Selfish ambition says I don't want anything to inconvenience me. I don't want anything to stretch me. I don't want to have to dig deep and be matured. I don't want to experience difficulty and have to grow spiritually. I don't want to have to humble myself and swallow my pride. It has to promote me. It has to bless me. It has to benefit me. 
It has to fit my perspective and my vision of me, not necessarily God's will for me. That's selfish ambition. Now, I know that this is heavy for a Sunday morning message, but this is exactly what James is writing about here in these verses. Then in verse 15, we also learn that this ungodly wisdom, which is contrasted with godly wisdom, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Worldly wisdom has some very specific motivators. A, worldly wisdom is selfish, which we have discussed in short. B, worldly wisdom is sensual. C, worldly wisdom is satanic. Commentary writer Adam Clark makes some observations about these three words. He says that earthly is having to do or has this life only in view. He, the word unspiritual or sensual, depending on what translation you're reading, is animal or has for its object the gratifications, the passions, and animal propensities. And devilish or demoniacal, inspired by demons and maintained in the soul by their ongoing influence. Now, let me elaborate a little bit. When, uh, we already talked about selfish ambition, but the next thing that he says, that worldly wisdom is unspiritual, meaning that it primarily relies on the senses. This is a carnal person. It is the person who relies heavily on the psyche. It is an inclination toward the sensual or the natural. In other words... The unspiritual is not spiritually minded in the sense of having a Bible-based perspective that is reliant upon the Holy Spirit. The unspiritual mind defaults only to logic and psychology. Now, there are two observations I want to make from these verses before we move on. Number one. The person that walks in worldly wisdom does not rely on God. And number two, the person who is operating in this selfish, unspiritual way of thinking is opening the door for demonic powers to operate, for it says that it's demonic. We see the same concept in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, when Paul says, be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And give no place to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. Give no foothold to the devil. And what Paul is saying is this, is that when we are angry and we choose to process that anger in an ungodly way and hold on to a grudge, it provides an opportunity for the enemy to have a foothold. Oh, Paul says something different to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, Paul is speaking about a man that in the first letter they had to excommunicate from the church because he was immoral. And Paul is encouraging them to forgive him, to not be overly harsh, to not be overly judgmental. 
And in chapter 2, verse 11, he says these words. Lest Satan has an advantage over us, we are not ignorant of his schemes, his designs, or his works. And what he was saying to them is, listen, when we choose to be unforgiving, when we choose to be overly harsh, when we choose to be overly judgmental, we are opening the door for the enemy. The Apostle Paul instructs Timothy to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. Why? Because the people who do are captive to Satan's will. 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 26. The very sad and terrifying thing is that ungodly wisdom will ultimately lead further and further away from God. This brings us to letter D. Worldly wisdom causes a downhill spiral. And we see this here in verse 16 where we read, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The person that is full of selfish ambition and operating out of earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom will cause disorder and every evil practice. This is why in verse 1, he warns those who would be teachers that they will be judged more strictly because their influence has the capacity to create all kinds of chaos because ungodly wisdom does not make things better. It only makes things worse. And the Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 3.13. He says this, While evil people and imposters will grow from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul mentions these people who he knows are practicing ungodly wisdom, and he says that they are evil imposters. These are the kinds of people who follow the dictates of their own mind. These are the kinds of people who follow the dictates of their own hearts. And at the end of the verse, Paul says that they will go from bad to worse because walking in ungodly wisdom causes a downhill spiral that leads to nowhere good. Now, getting back to the way James said it, he says that there will be disorder and every vile practice. The King James Version says it this way, that there will be confusion and every evil work. Walking in ungodly wisdom does not lead anywhere godly. Walking in ungodly wisdom does not lead anywhere good. Walking in ungodly wisdom does not lead anywhere edifying. Walking in ungodly wisdom does not lead anywhere God-glorifying, but it only leads to a downhill spiral. Then, in verse 17, he gives us the contrast. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Which brings us to number three. Godly wisdom flows from a heart surrendered to God. He says that the wisdom that comes from above is first pure. It comes from a heart that has not only been cleansed from its sins, but it is also submitted to God. Because he goes on to say that it is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. James is describing the heart of a person that is completely given over to the will of God. This reminds me of a story in the Bible. Of a, of a, the Bible calls it the rich young ruler. And I like particularly Mark's uh, rendition of it. In Mark chapter 10, uh, the story is told of a young man who came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him by saying, you know the commands, commit no murder, honor your father and your mother, your mother. And the young man said, all these things I have done from my youth. And Mark is the only one that has this line. The Bible says, Jesus loved him. And then Jesus responds and says, but one thing you lack, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The scriptures tell us that this young man walked away very sad because he had many possessions. I, liked, I think it's better stated that his possessions had him. Let me ask you a question. Are there things in your heart that if Jesus were to say, I need you to give them up, that you, like the rich young ruler, would walk away very sad? What if Jesus were to ask you to give up that relationship? What if Jesus were to ask you to give up that career path? What if Jesus were to ask you to give up something that you hold near and dear or your ideology or your way of thinking about something? This was a good young man. He kept the commands. He honored his father and his mother. He didn't steal. He did no murder. But there was something in his heart that kept him from completely surrendering to Christ. One of the most sobering verses are found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Jesus said these words, Many will say to me in that day, Did we not perform miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus said these words, And I will declare unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Can you imagine serving next to Jesus, operating in spiritual gifts, doing things for the kingdom of God, only for at the end to realize, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You can act right, you can do the right things, and even say the right things, but are you completely surrendered to Christ? 
Are you a fan or are you a follower? You need to ask yourself, are you saved or are you surrendered? Do you have churchianity or do you have Christianity? Is he just your savior which gives you fire insurance from the flames of hell? Or is he your Lord, someone to whom you submit and obey and follow? I want you to take a moment to consider that before we read the last verse because it has an impact on what it says. When Christ comes into our lives, he changes us. When the Holy Spirit seals us unto the day of redemption, he changes us. When we believe that we are a sinner in need of a Savior and that we of our own volition cannot meet the righteous requirements of God and we recognize that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, was buried and placed in a tomb and rode bodily again on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life, and we repent of our sins, we receive Christ and believe the gospel, a change comes. Something happens in our lives because the Holy Spirit comes and he brings life. Which brings us to verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. People who have godly wisdom sow peace and make peace because they have God's peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. With God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number four. Godly wisdom produces fruits of righteousness that stem from a heart of peace. And according to verse 18, we see that those who possess godly wisdom will sow peace into the lives of others and as a result have a harvest of peace. That applies to both the fruits of righteousness that are seen in this life, but also in the life to come unto everlasting life. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he brings us peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. When you have a relationship with Jesus, you will have peace. And as a result, you will grow into and promote godly wisdom that is full of meekness, humility, and sown in peace. We are called to seek peace and pursue it, Psalm 34, 14. We are called to be peacemakers, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We are called to seek peace with all men, follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are called to make 
every effort possible to make peace. Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live a life of peace with all men. Having said that, let me provide a word of caution. There is such a thing as false peace. See, false peace only has peace if you remove certain people from your life. False peace only has peace if you remove circumstances from your life. False peace only has peace by not dealing with the issues and sweeping them under the rug. A Baptist Scottish preacher from the early 1800s named Alexander McLaren once said, Peace comes not from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have peace? Do you know the Prince of Peace? Or is your peace predicated on the fact that you need to remove certain environmental stressors? Are you walking in godly wisdom? Are you growing in godly wisdom? Or today as I was preaching, you could see yourself in some of the motivators of ungodly wisdom. Perhaps you need to surrender your life to Christ today because you just realize you're just a churchgoer. You're not a Christian. And you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. There are going to be people under the screens to pray with you about these things. I pray that you will not leave this place without receiving ministry. Would you stand to your feet with me? Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you because your word teaches us that if we call upon you, you will answer and show us great and mighty things that we do not know. And so I pray that as we enter into this time of worship, as we enter into this time of ministry, Holy Spirit, God-empowered, sovereign, godly decisions would be made for your kingdom and for your glory this time to you in Jesus' name.